This is Season 5, Episode 3, Sand Talk with Tyson Yunkaporta. Before I introduce this week's guest, I wanted to drop in and share that the Regenerative Ways Weekend Retreat is already half full. We'll be gathering at the end of August for slow, nourishing food, deep conversation, organic opportunities for nature connection and movement, and really deep uh, connections with like-minded or kindred folks. We'll be exploring some of the ways that we can find more life-giving ways to live and learn and do business, and you'll leave the weekend feeling really embodied deeply connected and with a clarity of vision about your place in the ecosystem of transformation. You can find out all the details at megberryman.com forward slash events. This week I was so grateful and honored to interview Tyson. He's the author of Sand Talk and he is also an artist, a researcher, creative and just a really stellar human being who offered so much uh, in this conversation. Tyson belongs to the Appalachia clan and he also has deep connections across communities across Australia. And we talk about some of those connections uh, in this conversation. You'll notice that as we talk, there's some reference to the fact that when I was recording this, I had severe morning sickness and we have lots of jokes about that during this conversation. Even though my pregnancy ended in a loss, if you want to learn more about that, you can go back and listen to season um, five, episode one, Homecoming. I really wanted to keep that in because as you'll learn, Uh, we are always in conversation with life and the conversation that Tyson and I had wouldn't be, would be incomplete if I left that bit out. So it felt really important and regenerative to leave that in. I hope you enjoy this conversation. If you do, I would so love for you to rate um, or leave a review of the podcast or to share it on your socials really supports me in getting these incredible guests into your ear holes and uh, to, in, to just continue the work of regeneration and transformation. Enjoy. Um, that's so I, funny. I do, I do so many um, interviews with the, in the U.S., it's just it's just refreshing to have an interview and say, fucking hell. <laughs> hey. All right. I love that I love that this is how we're starting the conversation. Um, yeah, that's it. And I and now well, I've like, pressed record and that's all recorded. So yeah. and I love it. What a great conversation. I'm I'm here like sniffling and coughing and, and you're over there throwing your guts up with morning sickness and you know, it's all good. I love it though, because it's you know, as I was thinking about preparing for this podcast, I, I kept not preparing purposefully and I'm really I'm really excellent at not preparing things and so it was great to just keep being reminded of your work and your wisdom in the world around um how much we shut ourselves off from the magic of creation and co-creation when we prepare and like Mm. when we're in that rigid body state of like having to position ourselves or and I was thinking this morning you know 
the sulfur-crested cockatoos outside my window, I was like, oh, they want to be part of the conversation too. You know, they're out there in the gum yeah. trees and, and all of these different aspects. Can you maybe start there and talk a little bit more about the concept of yarning and sand talk and, and why you think this dialogic approach is is really integral to to shifting the way we think and do things? Yeah, well, and in the spirit of mindful unpreparedness, um, <laughs> that we're going on with um yeah I, I guess uh i don't know like one of my favorite thinkers is um mary graham she's a combo mary uh woman academic um uh from the gold coast there and she sort of she she sort of describes the whole indigenous worldview but so you know the idea of just being embedded you know in a landscape in that regenerative way um uh, she describes the whole philosophy as um, um, I am located, therefore I am. You know, and that's a, that's a pretty big reversal on the I think, therefore I am. It's like, you know, uh, where you are is really important. And, you know, I guess that's, that's uh, one of the big takeaways um, uh, from the book, you know, and all the yarns. Uh, they're in that book from uh, lots of elders from all over, knowledge keepers and and um, and others, even just kids, there's yarns in there. You know, there's that uh, that really strong message about being in place, and how profoundly connected that is to um, the process of your cognition as a human being. That you can't really know anything unless it's grounded in a sense of place. Um, that and you know, most, um, you know, all the the neuroscience and everything will agree with that. That a lot of your uh, memory and cognition uh, is intimately bound up with navigation. You know, with those processes, and it's basically you know the most powerful uh, processes, you know, neuro processes you have uh, that that govern you know most of your thought. Uh, in in terms of you know making sense and, and making a coherent worldview around those thoughts and inputs, um, that you know it's all associated with um, with spatiality, you know your locatedness um, and your movement through space and story, so narrative. So you basically um, most of your thought is is bound up with these uh, story maps, you know uh, that do not just exist within, you know, your skull, you know. Um, you know, I believe a lot of your neurology, a lot of your, um, uh, the neural processes that occur inside the brain, um, arguably these are a, a, a reaction, you know, to a lot of the thoughts you have rather than the source of the thoughts. Um, and I guess the jury's still out on that one. You know, like a lot of science would say, well, of course it originates in that organic matter, um, but I mean, you know, science knows that, um, correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation. So, you know, <laughs> so we, we do know that there's those neural processes going on while we think, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the cause of thought. Uh, we do know also that there's a lot of haptic cognition that goes on, uh, with our species and a couple of others, you know, whereby a lot of neural processes are happening beyond the brain. So in the body, but also out into the, uh, spaces in between, you know, into the, your relation with uh, tools, objects, uh, other people, other entities, you know, human and non-human around you and 
you know, but also the spaces and the places that you're working and thinking and being in, uh, even often places that are quite distant from you that you know well, there are, you know, thought processes and knowledge that's, um, that's produced, stored, transmitted, you know, within those uh, spaces in between. Um, yeah, so this is a lot of, I mean, what the, a lot of the messages in the book are around this, you know, the way cognition occurs um, and sort of tangentially, you know, talking, um, you know, kind of tweaking around the, the edges of what, uh, what consciousness really is. Um, you know, the whole thing is sort of a cognitive adventure, um, you know, into that. And so necessarily you are bound up with your environment. You are bound up with your place. As Adi says, you know, I am located, therefore I am. We are located, therefore we are, you know. And I guess that we, you know, there are a number of those in our languages too. It's like we, like us too. We, there's uh, exclusive we, like uh, us but not them. And then there's uh, all of us, us all. You know, there's a lot of different uses uh, that you belong to. Uh, in relation to your um, to your environment, so yeah, your uh, your cockatoos out there, um, you know, they're in that yarn with you. Mm. I love it because when you describe that that imagery, it just uh, immediately make the the map in my mind, right? Of the of that really symbiotic connectedness of. Yeah thought and creation and consciousness and then it, it situates this conversation in a broader context too, right? And so there's – I'm just curious about this idea of place because I've been seeing it a lot pop up in, in regenerative culture conversations of like, well, we've just got to get everyone connected with place and, uh, and that's complex. <laughs> that's complex. And, um, and it's something I've been grappling with, and, you know, on a personal level as well is it – is how do we connect with place that might be different from our ancestral place, maybe different from where we grew up. We've ended up scattered in place. And Mm. so I'm just curious about that process. You know, for you too, I know you have relationships interconnected all over Australia and beyond. So can you talk a little bit more about that conceptualisation of place and, and how we do that? particularly in the context of today? Well, I I think um, like ancestral connections with place, there's, there's some, um, I think there's some, there's some misconceptions that are bound up with that. You know, I'm not saying that doesn't exist and I'm not devaluing it. It's, it's, it's very important. You know, you do have that, but um, uh, it's not in as much of a deep time uh, sort of thing as people think. I, I don't believe um, because one thing we really know in our law is that the land is always moving. The land is in motion, uh, even if it's slowly in some places. Uh, most places it's pretty quick. You know, ecosystems move a couple hundred metres every year. So what does that mean over 100 years, a 1,000 years? You know, um, there is also exchange between and across systems. There are migrations. There are migrations of insect populations uh, megafauna populations, um, birds specifically, you know, are in much shorter cycles. Birds are migrating all the time. Um, there's a lot of exchange uh, between and across these systems. They're not these uh, enclosures, you know, and, and that's a very recent thing. 
And I think that idea of these permanent uh, territorial enclosures with boundaries is something that's been imposed on um, on ideas of indigeneity. Um, it's it's like you know originally it was this idea of just wandering savages with no sense of place at all, just wandering aimlessly across endless landscapes. Uh, and then it swung completely the other way to these completely sedentary populations that are, you know, parochial and, um, you know, defending the pa- their boundaries and territories and bloody constantly at war with other people uh, <laughs> to defend them and then steal their territory or something. It's like it is neither of those things, you know. Um, there's a lot of problematic ideas that have come down in, in uh, Western science that have a bit of a, a hangover from uh, earlier Christian theology, uh, particularly around this idea that, um, you know, everything in the world, you know, has a taxonomy uh, that, and is categorized and named and labeled and there's samples and images and photographs and sketches of these things and they're put in little drawers and they're put in little books and they're list, put in these indices that say, well, this is where this thing is from. Uh, these people come from this place. You know, Asians come from Asia. Europeans belong in Europe. Africans belong in Africa. You know, giraffes belong in this part of Africa. Um, penguins belong in this place. And that's where God put them. You know, so that's where they belong. Um, but the actual fact of our biology and of our history is of vast and constant migrations. You know, and we know this about human beings. It's like... Uh, it's, it's constant migrations, and it's not uh, that doesn't make us unusual uh, in the big family of animals that, that we're in or in all of our animal kin. Animals do move uh, across and around between different habitats uh, all the time. Um, pretty much most species, if they're not adaptive, unless they've found an incredibly stable niche somewhere, if they're not adaptive and moving, then they, they become extinct pretty quickly. Um, in fact, anybody who does find a stable niche and doesn't change, uh, that makes them very vulnerable to, um, you know, sudden changes like rising or falling sea levels, you know, uh, volcanic eruptions, uh, uh, meteor strikes, um, pretty much a billion different cataclysms um, will mean that you're wiped out and finished if you're not, uh, if you don't have the capacity Um you know, to be seeking refuge elsewhere, you know. Um, uh, and I don't know, to me, this sort of gives more agency and dignity to the idea of uh, being a refugee, mm. you know. a, a refu- Being a refugee, like, I don't know, politically, uh, every, every aspect on the spectrum of politics, you know, paints refugees as, as sort of victims or sort of, you know, evil wrongdoers. Or, or whatever, it's a negative idea, this sort of, uh, you know, that they're moving when they shouldn't be or that they're, um, they're being moved when they shouldn't be moved. But basically that's what we do as human beings. As the context changes um, and as the land shifts or the, even the political landscape shifts, you know, you've got to move. And that's what we do. It's what we've always done. It's what we've done for about a million years uh, or more. And um, why would we not want to retain the capacity to do that? And we've done it forever until, you know, basically, you know, the last recent really 
tiny blip of time in history, uh, we've been highly mobile. And that doesn't mean nomads either, you know, because we, we do live at the same time within bioregions. And, uh, you know, those bioregions move, but they move quite slowly. And we live within those and we know them intimately and we are of that place. So at the same time as I say, I'm located, therefore I am, you know, and these are my homelands and they will be, you know, probably for my life um, <clears throat> and probably for the life of my children. Still, those things are shifting. Mm. And, um, you know, even over deep time, the stories will shift. So, yeah. I love it because every time uh, my brain gets into that real colonised thinking of like linearity and categorization, and it's like through your story and through your words and, and just through your beingness, I guess, it, it shakes it loose and, and it has a real physical effect in my body and, and I, that's how I see um, this work is it's an embodied, it's an embodied remembrance of, um, of that non-linear, whatever that word is that we yeah. can't quite grasp of, of that truth and, and all well, the truths existing simultaneously, right? We're, we're, not, we're not trying at the moment as human beings to position ourselves, you know, according to place or relation. You know, we're positioning ourselves usually on a continuum between one abstract concept and its opposite. Yeah. All of us are basically our identities are not place-based, but they're ideology-based, mm -hmm. you know, sort of striving to choose between two opposites or in a position along a continuum between two opposite abstract concepts. So just like that idea of, you know, um, that, of being in your territory, in your homeland, in your bioregion and belonging to it and having a language that comes out of it, you know. So there's that idea, which seems quite static. And then there's its opposite, which is, um, you know, that these things move and that you have to move with them. Um, they're two completely opposite ideas. Ah, which one is true? Which is the right one? <laughs> which is the, ah, oh, which is the dominant narrative? Which is the truth? Which one? You know, but we just, in our culture, we don't have these dichotomies. You know, what we have is more accurately described as dyads, you know, these pairs of things that coexist together, you know, uh, two truths that are, are one thing, you know, that, um, yeah, two truths that are one. You know, it's, it's our entire you know, society and, and your way of being personally is, is based on this sort of constant tension and balance between your individual autonomy and your group responsibility. You know, your your inability to see yourself as being separate from all of the things and places and people that you're in relation to, but then at the same time, uh, your desire to express yourself as this unique and amazing uh, human being. You know, both of those things are true of Aboriginal culture at once. Uh, the fact that they both exist at the same time um, very comfortably within your worldview, uh, that's what makes it this... Uh, now unique Indigenous uh, worldview, uh, point of view. But, um, you know, it wasn't very long ago that that was not unique. You know, I, I would argue that prior to the moment Martin Luther banged his essay up on the door uh, before, you know, that rampant individualism that took off like a wildfire with Protestantism and the spread of literacy so people could read their own personal Bible and have their own personal relationship with God in Europe, 
I'd say most of the people in the world uh, did not think like like that. I think most of the people in the world uh, thought pretty much the same way Aboriginal people do, um, and that it was not an unusual way to think. Uh, that it's very recent that uh, that we've all been taken out, out of this. But also, you know, you're going to have a baby soon, and that baby's going to be born um, with the, the with an Aboriginal brain. I mean, every ba- every human baby is born, you know, um, with a beingness that is what we would call Indigenous, referred to as Indigenous today. Um, and it, it just takes a lot to domesticate that poor little being into, into being something else. Um, yeah. It does. And I love the inquiry in, in your book around knowledge transmission and, and what we're valuing within that, you know, broadly in the realm of education. I'm doing air quotes, you can't see it because yeah. we're on audio, but, you know, this idea of education and, and that domestication and, and, and really you referring to it as this broader macro discussion around knowledge transmission and, and how are we doing that and, um, and what are we it's like the, the both the process of it and the what of it. What are we What are we teaching? I wonder whether you could riff on that a little more. Around so if we saw the patterning around our current education system, for example, as a process of domestication and get, getting these brains into tighter and tighter categories and, and yeah. less liminality and ambiguity, what types of knowledge transmission support that being? to continually inhabit that Indigenous brain, that way of Look, thinking. I, I, don't think, I don't think we're going to see that. No, nobody's going to see, you know, anything in education. Education is the, um, is the front line in, in the sort of war on everything that is being conducted by almost everybody um, right now, and it has been for decades, you know, <clears throat> Ideologies are like, you know, that, that's the space. It's the marketplace um, where ideologies seek to grant, gain supremacy, the education mm-hmm. of our children. You know, it, if you have a good idea or you hear a good idea or a good bit of research or a, an interesting and little-known piece of history, you know, what's your first response? You know, when you take that into yourself and you go, oh, that's good, that fits my brand, that fits my little <laughs> Facebook page or whatever. That 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 refl- that that version of history really reflects who I am. I think that's really important. And then you think everyone should know this. And then the first thing that comes out of your mouth is they should teach it in schools. <laughs> you know, every single one of us. I don't care what side of politics you're on. You know, you 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 firmly believe that all the things. You know that make your story the right story, uh, that they should be taught in schools. You know, school's not about education. It's like a battle for content and information and, you know, uh, discourses and ideologies. That's it. You know, your kids are not learning processes there, not directly anyway. You know, they're learning indirectly all the really stupid processes uh, and abusive processes that we're perpetuating throughout the rest of the society. Yeah. You know, they're learning, they're learning hierarchy and through the, you know, what they're seeing on the front lines because they're there. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where the war is being fought. That's the front line there. And uh, there's a lot of um, collateral damage 
that goes on there. You know, there's a lot of friendly fire that's um that's you know destroying these poor kids as well. I mean, apart from just the the general kind of abuse of deciding that you know, oh, well, this institution's going to decide what goes into this kid's head. Um, you know, rather than that person being able to free range through and and uh, focus on and observe on what uh, what grabs them and what they're ready for, and what elders and community are deciding they're ready for as well. Instead of that, you've got you know this institution. People fight over what's going to be in the curriculum. Um, you know, I've heard people say to me, "Oh, your book should be taught in schools," and I'm like, "Fuck no! Keep my book away from school. <laughs> like, I don't want it there." You know, um, plus, you know, uh, half of my book is, um, you know, it's, it's very, very um, debatable stuff. You know, the things that are in my book, it, it's not all, you know, perfectly researched stuff where the science is settled. You know, it's, 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 it's a side of flux for information. You know, the very first sentence in my book is, is contestable. You know, I, I mean, it's about echidnas. Pretty much right from the start, I'm, I'm starting off with a, a fact that's like almost pseudoscience. You know, echidnas have got larger brains than humans in relation to their body size. And more of that brain is um, is for executive function, you know. Uh, so, you know, wow. Uh, however, um, you know, I only ever found one research paper on that. So the science isn't settled on it. Like, you know, although I have, like people have sent me other things since then. But when I wrote it, I'd only been able to find one piece of research that supported that. And, you know, as you know, in science, you can't just rely on one bloody paper. Like, you've got to have 50 of them, you know, that with the results being replicable in different circumstances over and over. Um, and there has to have been attempts to falsify those claims in, in a number of ways uh, in order to test them before you can start to imagine, you know, uh, that it's a real idea. My book's full of stuff like that. You know, it's a lot of it's, I mean, almost speculative fiction, uh, but that's not what it's about. It's not about a list of facts that are going to remain static. Um, I've actually since found a lot more evidence to back up that uh, the echidna thing. Apparently there's, uh, there's a book on it. Somebody was uh, sent me a book title. Um, there's a whole book about this. I can just imagine your inbox now being full of just echidna facts, like that that's what's happened is now <laughs> that's your yeah. sole point of reference is the echidna. But, um, it's, it's funny. There, there's the, it's weird in the collective consciousness. I mean, I could pretty much, I could take my inbox as a data set, you know, just on the topics of the emails. Um, it would be a good data set for this as proof that there is a kind of collective unconscious going on out there. Um, because, I mean, the themes all seem to line up half the time. I mean, there was about three months of just echidna stuff, mm. hundreds of emails from people just talking echidna stuff. And then since then, nothing, not one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but there there's always seems to be a, a, a general kind of theme or set of themes uh, coming, right. coming into my inbox, you know, from month to month, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes, these patterns. Mm -hmm. you know, so we're all working through these ideas together. Um yeah, but this idea of schools and, you know, ah, education, you know, being the answer and, you know, like, uh, like, yes, you tend to do better in this marketplace if you have, you know, an education or uh, if you have that, you know, that transferable capital of a certificate from an institution that says you're, you're now, you know, 
you have a pass to get into this marketplace. Yes, you tend to do better in a society that, you know, where you can't eat or be sheltered unless you're successful in that marketplace. You know, that doesn't mean that education itself makes you a healthier person or makes you live three years longer than anyone, everyone else on average or whatever. Um, you know, in and of itself, it doesn't contain the magic elixir to make a human being a better human being. Mm-hmm. You know, it does manage to bend you and stretch you into the right shape, uh, you know, to suit the needs of the robber barons who rob our existence and decide, you know, what kind of access to resources each of us gets, though. Um, and that's about all it does. Um, yeah, but I mean, uh, a, a lot of us, you know, a lot of Indigenous Australia is constantly fighting those battles and they're fighting really hard, you know, about what should be included in the curriculum, what history should be taught in the curriculum. Oh, there's all culture wars and everybody's lining up and choosing sides over it. And to me, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. I mean, education itself needs to change horrendously. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know, think of something really awful that really shouldn't happen in the world. Uh, I need a good metaphor for this. Um and I don't want to like fall back on like Nazis or pedophiles. If that's okay, there must be something else. <laughs> you know, um, um, you know, it's it's like uh, I don't know. It's like uh, okay, execution. You know, it's like arguing over whether whether it should be lethal injection or firing squad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're talking you know, about the things, not the ways, yeah, right? Like it's, it's like as if everybody accepted that capital punishment was right and just and normal, and everyone was just arguing on how we kill these prisoners. Um, That's what most conversations about education feel like to me. Um, It's like this this institution needs to change and pretty much be broken up, and it needs to be moved back to community. You know, there need to be children in our workplaces. You know, young people need to be almost like interns in our lives. You know, throughout the community, they need to have mentors who are like, you know, leather workers and software engineers and bloody everything right through the community. They need to be embedded in the community, in our workplaces, and they need to be learning from and with us, you know, all the time. Um, This idea of having all these spaces, you know, building a society where most places uh, are not child-friendly, that that is a bullshit society. And the idea that you have to corral them into a place with fences you know, so they don't get snatched or run off or escape. <laughs> the idea that you have to corral them in the daylight hours, like, you know, like a, a, a baby horse that you're trying to break. Um, that's awful. Mm-hmm. Who the hell would do that to their children? Oh, my God. I'm about to do it to my own. <laughs> I've got a four-year-old and I'm, I'm about to send her off in, within the next year or so. Um, to be broken. So, so that we can work, right? Like, yeah, so, so well, exactly. It's, yeah. And it's either that or she ends up dying on the side of the road in the rain, um, you know, because she has to be broken enough to be able to function and be useful for this society. There's no room for horses out running free on the plains around here. There are no plains. That's not yeah. prairies or plains anymore. That's not tundra. That's capital. That land is all capital and we can't have fucking horses just run around on them. If you want to be a horse, get a saddle on you. Start pulling a cart. 
you know, get used to the whip and the bit and the harness and all the rest, you know, we'll feed you when you, when we want you to get fed. Um, that's, uh, basically, that's basically it. I'm about to do that to my children. Uh, and it's, how do you, um, how do you you're going to do it to yours. Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're kind of in that place now mm-hmm. of like I've been to a couple of schools and every time my, my body is like I just – and I was homeschooled, right? So I was pretty yeah. wild. <laughs> I ran on the planes until I, until I didn't and then I was the opposite, broken in. And, um, and Well, you were probably one of the last ones who got to go through without uh, that being strictly controlled. I mean, there are so many – I mean, if you're homeschooling now, you're looking at um, – you know, vicious amounts of, um, you know, inspection yeah. of, your, of your curriculum and uh, sort of forced inclusion of, of a whole heap of stuff in the curriculum that mm, sort of makes a prison in your own house anyway. Um, so there's no such thing really as, how, as homeschooling anymore. Um, yeah. Yeah, you're right. I was I was probably one of the last ones. I remember that <laughs> there's, this, there's this funny story my mum tells about how um, – they brought in. They brought in some researchers. I don't know who it was. I don't know the specifics, but I'll just go broad. And they were doing a, you know, kind of a control study, looking at the homeschool kids. And they brought in the the schooled kids. And of course, the framework that you're being assessed against is already within the dominant paradigm, right? So it's like yeah. you, you're set up to fail from the minute you walk in. And what they what they said is like, oh, yeah, these kids, they can't stay focused, they have to move around. That, but there was no reference to the fact that we could all be really cohesive in an intergenerational context. Like we could be, I could talk to kids that were 15 and I was four, you know, there was this real, they didn't, they didn't reference any of the critical thinking capacities that were there, like any of the um, creative solutions that would be able to be come up with in that environment. So it's just, it's really interesting, the measures, right? Like you said, it's like the, the measures, it's, it's all, no one can succeed in that because the definition of success is so narrow and so confined. And and as you were talking, it was reminding me of of this idea and everyone fighting over like what things to put in the curriculum. It's this obsession with the scene and the physical and like what are the things to put in other than rather than the ways. Why aren't we teaching ways that we would if they were being mentored in community? And I'm just wondering, because you work in the education system, a higher education system, which is different or maybe similar, how do you model different ways in an academic context? Uh, I I don't. Mm. You know, like most educators, I do what I'm told and, you know, you do what you can around the edges of that. And... You know, that's all. I mean, I've uh, so I was a teacher for about ten years, uh, twelve years, and you know, I did what I could, and um, you know, I, I experienced a lot of uh, strife. I mean, so they're not really interested in the outcomes that they're talking about, you know, because I mean, so I was uh, time and time again in many different schools, um, you know, I would teach using kind of really free-range learning pedagogies. And, you know, time and time again, I had the students like, you know, uh, coming top of the school or top of the state even uh, a couple of times, you know, with their outcomes, their desired outcomes. But I still got in trouble because of how I got there. You know, there are the stated outcomes and then there's the gamut outcomes, Um, the the real outcomes under the, you know, (laughs) 
I mean, there are there are sort of hidden outcomes, unspoken outcomes in the education system, and you need to be meeting those as well. And it does involve breaking the students and weaponizing boredom, uh, you know, uh, teaching them to be able to do repetitive tasks where they're focusing just on the one thing in front of them to the exclusion of the context, a global context around that thing. That's the most important thing uh, to teach students. And, I mean, the main exit outcome for education in this country and throughout all the, you know, weird countries in the world, the Western educated, industrialized, rich democratic countries, you know, um, the main exit exit goal is to prepare our students for industry. And that's it. You're preparing students for job readiness, you know, and job, that's it. You know, you, you have to, we're preparing students to be workers and that's it. And in tertiary education, it's not much different. You're just, um, you're preparing students to become uh, knowledge economy workers. And it's pretty much the same thing. You know, it's about uh, production. Um, and the knowledge production is not something that your students are going to be involved in, uh, except for as a cog in a, in a wheel. Other people are deciding on the knowledge and um, and putting that forward. You know, your academics, um, well, mostly in tertiary institutions now, you know, um, research, you know, like self-directed kind of research is regarded as a privilege and only a, a handful of people get to do that. And those people are being directed anyway by forces above them as to what they will be researching, you know. Uh, they're being directed by, you know, the people who disseminate grants and things like that, the funding opportunities. Um, yeah, I mean, you know... <laughs> So the idea of having like real education and learning happening even in any way within that system, you know, I mean, you know, they, they're always arguing about education in the United States, but, you know, basically you've got groups like the Council on Foreign Relations and, and all these really high-level think tanks and organisations and, and you know, half the people at Davos and, and et cetera, um, you know, they're deciding on all the foreign policy. They're deciding on um, you know, the, where the economy is going and what the structures are going to be and where the money is going to move and where the influence is going to move uh, in the short-term and, and long-term future. You know, there's no uh, wriggle room in that. And, you know, basically most of us, most human beings are, you know, they just have to be groomed and broken through these institutions in order to become, you know, uh, what that machine needs, the meat that that machine needs going through it to make the bloody, all the sausages that keep capital going. Uh, that's basically it. Yeah. So, you know, why would I care whether or not the school's doing Indigenous content or what that content is? You know, I mean, oh, I mean, I know plenty of students you know, who've been really just traumatised and who, you know, uh, completely walked away from their identity because of what was presented in schools, you know, at the request of the Indigenous community, you know, uh, or, or, you know, uh, Indigenous scholars who've insisted, you know, on these kinds of activities happening. Uh, I have a grown son who was so traumatised by, um, you know, NAIDOC Week activities where, because his understanding of rocks is you don't take them from country and, you know, they can make you sick. And so they're there, 
you know, with Indigenous content forcing him to paint dots on rocks. And he's like, Dad, we don't do dots. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, they're making me, look, I have to bring this rock home. And what are we going to do with this rock now? I don't know what's in that rock. Um, he's traumatised from that. And then he has to, uh, I don't know, write an essay on Rabbit Proof Fence, the movie, and stuff like that. And he's looking at those characters and, and you know, apart from a broad sort of historical sort of feeling of trauma that, you know, he, he can relate to but would rather not think about it at, at the age of 14 uh, because he's going through enough trouble. <laughs> yeah. You know, he's just like, Dad, I'm just going to smoke weed now. I'm just going to rock the ganja for a few years. I'm dropping out. And, you know, uh, <laughs> and there you go. Uh, that's another student lost, you know, through the best of intentions. It's just, I, I don't know, I'm sick of education. I'm sick of questions about education. I have hated schooling. I have hated education um, for 44 years now, 45 years from the first time I was thrown into one of those places and I've never, ever, ever escaped it. You know, I've either been in, in school, high school, bloody university or teaching in schools or teaching in universities for the whole bloody time. And I've hated every single minute of it. Mm. And um, I, I don't know, it means that I get to this age and I don't have any capital, you know, because I, I don't know, I, I am interested in learning and I am interested in knowledge and I'm fight in every tiny corner to make those things happen. Um, but that does not, uh, make a good career for an educator. You, you're not going to get promoted, um, you know, so that's why <laughs> I, I'm not Professor Tyson and I will never be Professor Tyson. I'm, I'm not going to get those kinds of, um, you know, uh, things, promotions. Um, man, I've spent, I've spent the last few years asking for a demotion, you know, to a fellowship so that I could do my research. Yeah, pay me less, demote me and let me do some research. No, 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 no. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I don't know, the institutions are kind of uh, frozen, static, uh, immobile, and they kind of keeping knowledge the same way. Anyway, uh, that's a bit of a rant there. You might have to cut off of that. No. I, I'm just, uh, it's just triggered me. I'm so sick of it. Fair enough. I'm so sick of education and what it does to knowledge, what it does to our minds. You know, it, it starts by locking our minds into our skulls. Um, and then it, it continues by making sure that um, our, our minds are locked out of our relationships, you know, so that our relational universe is reduced down to this tiny pinprick and we're unable to connect, unable to think, unable to be in place, to be located. Uh, to have any meaningful story, you know, and then we have to try and invent new words like, you know, like regenerative and sustainable and things like that to try and figure out how the hell we're going to stop everyone from dying. Um, and, and we're no longer capable of the kind of thought that's needed to do that. So we've lost um, the connections. Yeah. So what's our, oh, what are we going to do? Oh, we're going to write up some modules and some units of work to do about sustainability for schools, you know. And, uh, you know, if we teach it in schools, then it will happen. You know, ah, oh, yeah, right, as if. Anyway, 
We're going to have get, to get away from education. Right? Let's get away from it. But I, but I, but I get it because even in even in different forms of work that I do, that is more consulting work, like more that knowledge generation, commodification of knowledge. Let's say of yeah. a certain set of knowledge. I'm constantly hitting up against the the language of being too ambitious or too, you know seeing that bigger web of connection and relationship and seeing what's possible if that was tapped into, including things like the body, including things like the land, including things like relationship, including non-seen forms of knowledge and knowing. And uh, the interesting thing that I've been exploring, I'd be really curious about, about your take on it, is that when we hit up against those places of friction that, our knowing, say, our conditioned knowing, it's up against someone else's knowing, the way that the colonised mind responds to that is to, is to go into shame and say I'm wrong or, like, I'm bad yeah. or, yeah. you know. And so this idea of being able to exist in the liminal space of multiple truths or dyads or and all yeah. the complexity in between, is that kind of the thinking that you're referring to that can be liberatory in that way of, yeah. of not needing to be right and not needing to have shame about right and wrong and, and that whole bullshit hierarchy construct just being yeah. eroded over over that letting go of the binaries in a way. Well, we can come into that through just that one word that you used there, shame, mm. you know, and that's um, so I'm reading a study uh, a psychological study um, at the moment about the difference between um, uh, sh- shame and guilt. You know, in uh, you know uh, civilized societies and, and what they call civilized or whatever. You know, these uh, you know Western democratic, educated, etc., literate societies, and um, and you know indigenous cultures or uh, a lot of land-based cultures. Um, but the most important thing aspect there is about uh, you know collectivist cultures as opposed to individualized cultures, and that's a really important distinction because um, shame is experienced differently. You know, so for highly individualistic cultures um, like the one that you're currently forced to inhabit, hopefully not for much longer, hopefully not forever anyway, um, you don't feel shame. Like you don't even know what shame is. Uh, what you're experiencing is guilt, and guilt is an individualized version of shame. So shame is something that you actually experience uh, from the outside of yourself. You know, guilt is something that you have internally, that you internalize, and that's part of your inner hell and inner struggle and inner jihad that you have to deal with. <laughs> you know, and and it can be imposed, you know, by the culture that you're in, but it's something that you have to experience individually and you have to atone for individually, whereas shame is a bigger thing. You know, shame is something that's imposed on you by the entire community, and it's not just on you, you know, it's, it's something that's experienced by you and the people that you're in relation to, you know, so it's kind of distributed, uh, but that kind of makes it worse. You know, that, that, that feeling of actual shame when you belong to a more communal culture is, um, it's, a, it's a horrible thing. Um, but then so is guilt in its own way. But there's a difference between those two things. Um, 
so yeah, I guess that I, I just thought of that as a really good uh, way into your question. Yeah, just as a little thought experiment, where where do you see that going in light of um, what you're asking about? Well, it's it's a great entry point because I think every way I've looked at this, working with individuals right up to systems, whatever, within my limited framework, every way I think about it, I hit up against the same thing. And that is, you know, all of this talk about like we've just got to find our way back to each other. We, we as in those that I am in connection with, can't even have a conversation with our neighbour without feeling yep. some level of activation of shame in some way. We yep. can't even, we are not even resourced with the capability to have a conversation like you and I are having right now where there is no right or wrong and we can be just in knowledge exchange and mm. in this liminal consciousness. We, mm. we lack fundamentally the capacity to relate to self in that way and therefore to other. And I think it's got everything to do with, and I'm not going to go back in there, but in, with that education concept of hierarchy and value and putting certain things above other things, like you refer to it, the story of Emu in the book, you know, that that to me seems like fundamentally where we've gone wrong. And mm. so to me to come back into these connections and reciprocity and relational ways of being, I'm thinking like how do we how do we move beyond that story of of needing to be in hierarchy all the time and needing to be in relativity and competition all the time and rather just be in our humanity, you know, to be all, all around in the same shit together. Mm. And I haven't yet come across other than in your exploration maybe uh, concepts of collectivism that explore what I would call regenerative relationship, which is which is just being in being in relationship with all of the shit that goes along rather than trying to strip out and exclude the uncomfortable bits of relationship. Mm. So I don't have a question, but I know you've got probably something to say in response yeah. to that. Uh, but, I mean, like, yes, relationships are messy, but I don't know, in real human cultures, in the real human patterning, like, you know, what you were born to be, you know, you're supposed to be able to not just tolerate, but, you know, include and find joy in a lot of different and conflicting stories and points of view. And in mm. fact, you can't know anything without that around you, without having like at least a dozen different stories and points of view around you that, I mean, might even directly contradict yours, your own individual perspective. But you can't make a decision. You can't decide on a direction of travel even or uh, any kind of response to anything unless you, um, you know, you find a consensus view of reality before you do that. You have to have a consensus view of reality and that has to include the outliers that has to include the insane, you know. Um, so even, you know, in human societies, we've traditionally, most of us have had like a, um, you know, a reverence for people who are, you know, what they call cognitively diverse now, you know. So someone who, you know, you're trying to talk about a really important uh, thing like, oh, there's a cyclone coming, you know, what do we need to do? And, you know, You've got to have someone there that's going, mm, the rats, rats have five whiskers. Uh, it's, I've got 
one foot bigger than the other. Can you see? Is it bigger or is it smaller? I can't tell. Like someone's saying some weird shit, um, you know, because in, in his random stuff, that rolling of the dice, there's the idea that uh, spirit is speaking through him. So we say, hang on a minute. What did he say about rats? Um, that's just made me think. I, I saw all the rats yesterday uh, were running uphill. I saw like 50 of them running up the hill uh, on, on the ridge there, like away from the bay. And then so the old fellow go, ah, all right. Well, that explains what was going on with those cockatoos there. All right, we need to move to high ground right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, uh, you know, everything has value, even if it's insane, you know. But we're not allowed to have that now. It's like, you know, it's, hi, how are you going? My name is Tyson. Um, yes, yes, that's all very well. Are you uh, pro-mask or anti-mask? <laughs> uh, pro-mask? Oh, awesome. My name's Sam. Good to meet you. You know, uh, now we can talk. Oh, really? Well, what if I didn't want to wear a mask? Uh, can we still talk? No. No, that's evil. Um, it's like, holy shit. What's happened? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, and it's not like this is new. You know, this stuff has, you know, been around for, a, you know, about a century, I think. You know, uh, pretty much since they moved everybody off the land and, and broke them in these schools and, and you know, industrialization kicked off and then they had to have a bunch of world wars and such uh, to, like, you know, beat people into submission. Um, it's been around at least that long. And I guess there's been various permutations and trials going on for a few millennia before that, you know, probably in Egypt and <laughs> places like this. But Jesus you know, can you calm down a little bit, please? Uh, we're all supposed to, like, be yarning here. We're all supposed to be, yeah, taking a little more a little more time to understand that those fringes and margins. And yeah. I, I love that. I love this idea that everyone has value. And, and there's a beautiful quote that you share in the book around listening to, listening to diversity. And, mm. um, you know, I think the extension of this in the in the spiritual world and new age spirituality at least is like, well, then we all have to go on our individual quest of like finding our worth and value. I just, I just feel like that's not really the answer either. It feels like it's more the collective work of, of unlearning that yeah. there's a hierarchy of value and it, and it has to be relational, right? I just don't think it's, we can do it on our own and figure yeah. it all out. Well, you, you know what I really, like, actually love about my own book? Um, I said, I mean, there's a lot that I dislike about it, but the thing that I really love about it is is how I managed to embody that, you know, almost ritually, that, um, I, I like, I've created it, like, almost a, is it a place, is it a space? I don't know, where where people feel welcome. Um, and not just welcomed, but welcoming, you know, of other things. Like I feel like people like to sit around and hear uh, stories that contradict their own in the space of that book, you know, because I wrote it in such a way where, you know, there's such a broad range of like weird opinions in there that I mean at least 20% of that book would be offensive to any person living on the planet. Like 
extremely offensive. And But, I mean, nobody's really getting offended. I mean, I know a few people who are offended just about the fact that I've written the book um, because they don't like me, <laughs> but they haven't actually read it. Anyone who's actually read the book uh, is, is not offended by some of the most offensive things in there that I've said. Um, but they're actually kind of just enjoying it, you know. So I did the political continuum test, and I'm about, I'm like right down in the bottom corner. I, I'm a, a, an extreme left libertarian is, is what, what I've been identified as after that doing that survey. Um, and I don't know, there's not many of us. Um, but I've got people from right across every part of the political continuum um, who are connecting with me. You know, I, as kin almost, that being in relation to me, I'm able to have like a um, a conversation like this, you know, with you right now that, you know, you normally wouldn't be able to have with a stranger, but we're, we're like connected in a way just through that book. Like we've already in some way shared stories, but not specific content of stories, but we've shared a process where we've, we've both got kind of come through either reading or writing that book, um, you know, into a space where we're really keen to just sort of sit down and, and throw ideas around safely um, and productively and, and with, with a kind of siblinghood. Um, I think that's kind of beautiful. It is beautiful and it's something that I... I don't. I don't love the word. I don't love words because they come tethered with all the shit behind them. But to use the word activism, something that I really appreciate about the book and your work and what you're demonstrating to me as a mentor, in a way, is the including of different forms of expression, but all of those forms being inherently tied to the beingness that you are, right, as, as a being. Mm. And um, that's why when I, when I share these stories with other folks, it's, it's, all, it's never about the what, right? Like we're so obsessed with the what, of yeah. like what do I do? What do I do about it? And it's like just it doesn't matter. That, that's, that's irrelevant to like the how you are being when you're doing it. So as you said, there's something in that about the way that we come together to share an experience that does create shared understanding and safety in polarity of understanding. Mm. But there's also this element of like uh, that we get to have diverse expressions of the views that we have and that each yeah. of those can influence different audiences in different mm. ways and to give ourselves the freedom to not, like, to constantly rebel against that. Yeah. I need to get more and more focused and refined, right? But not just in this in this kind of way of, like, oh, safe space kind of, because that shits me too. I don't like that. Yeah. And I don't like this this idea of, you know, this obsession with power dynamics and, you know, people are heard and unheard kind of thing and, I just want to be heard, um, you know, because everybody's heard now. But it's just people feel unheard when their narrative doesn't win, you know. So it's this complaint and, and this constant attack and offence and, and finding offence and seeking offence and, and blah, blah, blah. 
and 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 this thing about safety it's it's not what i meant by safety like i think i i meant something more around this i don't know this this productive collaboration yeah you know where the focus is more on um uh what we can what meaning we can make together you know even even if and especially if our our ideas are opposite and clash um you know I've made quite a few friends in in the last year who are, are just absolute opposite to me in every way, you know, um, like completely. And I mean, I've made friends with people who, you know, a lot of my closest friends and colleagues uh, would. I mean, if they knew that I was friends with these people, that they, they would uh, like disown me immediately. Half of them, <laughs> just just for even speaking to that person without yelling at them. You know, but I, you know, I, I'm just, I find a lot of connection with uh, with people who are nothing like me, and that means that I, you know, I'm I'm friends with a lot of people who have have some horrendous ideas, but our friendship together, it, it changes both of us, and it changes their ideas, and like you know, suddenly they're moving on from you know ideas like, you know, West is best and you know, ah, oh, replacement theory or some shit like that. And they're going, ah, um, yeah, I, I think I want to start including, you know, uh, some women of color in this project I'm doing, you know, to try and get this different perspective. You know, things move, people shift, but they shift through relation. Yeah. They don't shift through fucking war. Like, have we learned nothing? You know, we've had a century of the most horrific and widespread war in the history of our species. We've had a century of it. Have we, have we noticed anything? <laughs> yeah. Jesus. And, and we're at war in our houses, in our homes, with the way our, you know, marriage institutions and everything else is set up. And it doesn't change the institution of marriage <laughs> like just to make it available to gay people. It's like I, I wanted that to go the other way. Like I wanted gay people to queer marriage for us and fix it up. I didn't want marriage as an institution to be settled over the top of gay people and ruin them because they're the only creative and decent people left. It's like, oh, Jesus, God, no, don't do that to them. <laughs> Please, you know. Save our gay people. They're the, <laughs> they're the last free range thinkers left. God. Anyway, so I was I was hoping like to see this process of the queering of uh, of marriages and institutions. That didn't happen. Um, and I guess it's just this general malaise of our education system that completely ignores process to the point where it's invisible to people. And we just focus on the what. And the what is like just gay and marriage. And now we're going to have gay marriage. Um, but that's just, to, no, it's not even that. It's marriage equality. It's like, you know, they can join in with the thing that we're doing over here. You know, we can like heteronormativize gay relationships. Ah, oh, that sounds awful. Um, yeah, it's not dialogue. When that happens. Um, anyway, I don't know if that was a good metaphor or a really bad metaphor, but um, 
I think it's a, I don't know, it, it, to me it's, it's indicative of this inability to see processes, this inability to understand what actual dialogical ways of being are. It's the, it's the, it's the inability to see dyads and, and uh, just this, this willful ignorance of transforming everything into dichotomies that must be overcome. And they must be overcome by one side of something winning and that narrative becoming dominant. And like, and we know that's a lie. We know that's impossible. That never happens. You know, <laughs> that just ends up with war and with massive swinging seesawing power relations. Um, and, but they don't, nobody sees the axis on which that seesaw is tipping and spinning. And that axis is the quiet prick in the middle who's cleaning up, is making so many quadrillions of dollars while the rest of us are <laughs> mud wrestling. Oh, are exhausted. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. Like it's the exhaustion of that, oh. of that process that it actually is like when you say being, being in relationship and, you know, like I'm looking out at my trees and just being, being with them and, and, and all of that like actual life. You know, actual being living. Yeah. There's no space for actual living in that wrestling because it's exhausting. And I think coming to the end of our conversation, but I, I, I'm really just curious about this idea of, um, the the analogy you used was perfect actually because what I imagined was like I'm I'm visual, right? So I imagined this blanket of of dominant culture kind of like absorbing everything, (laughs) being like you can come, you can come. So it looks like inclusion, right? But actual inclusion would be these perspectives on the margins shooting holes in that blanket and literally obliterating it. So you're talking about this this process of... um, all like pretend olive branches, right? Yeah. But the system in itself staying fully functional versus transformation, which comes yeah. from being willing to tear the whole thing apart, tear the whole thing apart yeah. with that diversity of voice. I think it was. A That's bit, it. Yeah. And, and there needs to be, you know, ten, there needs to be dyads and push pulls, you know. So I mean, it's, it's just, you know, I, I weep when I'm hanging out with with gay friends now and they're referring to their spouse as their ball and chain. And I'm going, so what? We've, we've just straight eyed you now, you know, <laughs> that, that could have been so much more. And, you know, you, you could have, you could have helped this, this dying institution of marriage. You could have helped us like completely regenerate that, you know, and we could have done that together. Instead, all we've done is assimilated you into a, into a, dying outdated institution it's horrible and that that's what's happening with most things and even with the whole regenerative movement you know which is a a good move away from the idea of sustainability because it's at least problematizing that a little you know but it's like oh well how can we make uh you know how can we make accounting uh regenerative um you know how can we make this system uh this growth-based economic system that we're in how can we tweak it around the edges to make it more regenerative? It's like, well, you know, and I always say, well, how can you make a dog a vegan? It's about the same fucking thing. You know, you can force your dog to live on carrots and tofu, but that dog's going to die or he's going to eat you. And that's the only two things that are going to happen there. You know, this system 
can't be fixed. You know, the, the, this system, you know, relies on inequality and it relies on the destruction of land uh, in order to meet its goals. Yeah. And it needs to be ended. You can't make it more fair. You can't make it more green. How can you green this? How can you green Australia over the next, the Australian economic system over the next decade when we're going to need to increase oil production exponentially? in order to dig our way out of a global depression. How are you going to green this up? You're not going to green it up. That gas is going to get fracked. You know, those rare earth metal mines and refineries that the world is soon going to depend on are going to happen here. You know, half of the Kimberley is going to get blown up and dragged away to another country across the world. That's going to happen. Our Indigenous communities are going to be destroyed. That's going to happen. Our children are going to keep getting stolen. That's going to happen. Our education system is going to be um, uh, made increasingly more Soviet and bloody compressed and offensive and destructive and horrible in order to make that happen, and that's going to happen. There's no way inequality is going to be ended here because this growth-based economic system, due to the laws of supply and demand, require inequality in order for anything to have value. Oh, not value, price. Yeah, nothing could be priced unless it's limitable and excludable, and that requires a caste system where half of the population is missing out. So we can shift around who is going to receive that. If we elevate one group, then we're going to have to, um, I don't know, smash the Sudanese down a few more rungs or something. You know, this system requires inequality. You're not going to make it more equal. Yeah. You're just going to rebrand it a little bit. It can't be regenerative. It's not a regenerative system. This system has to end if you want your regeneration. Yeah. So, you know, if you're looking to design, you know, some kind of platform or some kind of rubric or something for regeneration that's going to like, I don't know, tweak something at the corners of your particular discipline, um, you know, I'm sorry, but that's not going to do shit. You know, you need story. You need good story and you need, you know, big story um, and you need to be having it with a lot of people and, you know, you need to be basically preparing to be mobile enough to move with this thing when it comes down uh, because it is coming down. Um, if you can find any ways, you know, instead of tweaking it to make it feel fairer or kick the can down the road a bit longer, if you can find ways to bring it down quicker, faster and sooner, uh, before it brings down our entire ecosystem with it, then um, that would be awesome too. Uh, but apart from that, you're not going to fix this pig of a thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Totally. And and it's like I, I realised a, a real humble moment, I think, in the last year of just realising how, unconsciously we commodify regeneration to be appealing and whatever, you know, yeah. regenerative well, you business, to. right? You like it's, to. yeah, you have, have to. to. And then at the same time, uh, I, I think. I do it. Yeah. I do it. Santos, how Indigenous thinking can save your ass, you know. That's, yeah. that's not remotely the message in there, in the book, as you know. But that's, uh, I still have to brand it that way I, yeah. if anyone's going to read it. Um you know, and I still have to talk nicer in the book than I'm talking to you now. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah. People still have to read the book and have hope. Um, 
And but their their hope is bound up with the idea of oh, can we please keep the age of reason and the enlightenment and civilization like? Can I keep all my cultural capital uh, through the apocalypse? Yeah. I just want to have hope that I can hold on to that. But I mean, the kind of hope that I'm I want to bring to people is is that they're going to be able to leave that stuff behind and walk away and thrive potentially yeah. down the track and potentially uh, discover other riches that are worth far more than the privilege that we cling on to, even though oh it makes God, us yeah. fucking miserable, you know. Yeah, that's it. And, yeah. like, uh, you know, what you're calling superfoods now, <laughs> you know, maybe one day that can just be your food. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> we can only hope. Um, I have loved this conversation. I'm curious. I know you said in the book, you know, that this this is a snapshot in time and that yeah. was a snapshot of that particular fortnight that you spent writing the book or whatever. Yeah. But I'm curious, what have you been stalking around the edges of recently? What are you exploring in your yarns and and your explorations? And Oh, my goodness. Like a lot. The things I'm really interested in are silly and so on. Um, Nobody's interested. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm doing a lot. I'm starting up a, an in, uh, Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab uh, this year, and um, you know, seeking lots of uh, donor funding uh, to make that happen and get a bit of a staff together and a, a, a team that's going to um, look at not just Indigenous, you know, content and data and stats and uh, you know, measuring our dysfunction or uh, um, reciting our histories or genealogies or, you know, it's not that content-based stuff, uh, but I actually want to get into the processes and systems um, that are applicable, you know, across many different disciplines and that might be applied uh, to some of the stickier and more complicated problems in the world. So it's, you know, kind of uh, really bringing that Indigenous complexity lens to research. Uh, I'm pretty excited about that. Um, it's, uh, and I guess if the book hadn't happened and the interest in that hadn't happened, then, then this would never have happened. So I'm, I'm pretty thrilled about that. Um, I don't know. I'm looking at uh, – I'm currently writing up a paper on uh, Indigenous protocols for ritualised violence, um, like the way uh, violence is used for regulation traditionally in our communities. And I'm using the basic protocols of that uh, to evaluate 100 YouTube fights of um, – of settler, settlers fighting in the street. So I'm evaluating settler street fights uh, under an indigenous lens rubric. That's kind of a culture jam uh, research project that's, that's just kind of cheeky and reverse anthropological and all that kind of thing. Um, I've been working on that for ages and, and I'm finally just getting around to writing it up now. Um, yeah, and that's, that's, uh, there's heaps of things I'm working on. Uh, uh, indigenous protocols with community for uh, artificial intelligence, uh, doing some VR stuff. There's a lot of uh, intersections with tech, as you can see, uh, but also looking at the consciousness business and um, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it's lots of fun. It um, sounds like it. Sounds but I tell you, I just, I really enjoyed this talk. I mean, I, I just, um, I always enjoy conversations with women who are experiencing morning sickness um, because it's like, <laughs> It's like there's just they haven't got time for any shit. Uh, and it's just like, you know, it's like I, I don't know, I always feel liberated to just, um, you know, cut straight to the uh, cut straight to the point and, I don't know, just and say wild stuff 
because it's like they're always open to it in those moments and and, and it's like it's something that comes with nausea that, that will cause a person to throw caution to the wind and, and just <laughs> say what they're thinking. Yeah. And uh, it's always a good conversation. I, I mean, love on my that. Side, anyway, I horrible, love that yeah. very specific, like I'm going to only take podcast conversations with women who experience morning sickness. <laughs> but, no, I get it because it's. I guess it's a really liminal space, the veil between life and death is very thin at this particular moment right so it opens up um access to different wisdom i think and and you're right i think i think where i'm at is i've had a i've had a gut full of conforming this week and so you've caught me at a good day where we can where we can speak bold truths and see how they land and be uh, unattached to how they land as well yeah cool thanks heaps tyson for coming on the show yeah thanks for yarn it's been